This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. You can spot Leaf fans now. They're very excited. They've already started wearing jerseys around. Less than a week to go. Fortunately, fortunately, the National Hockey League has basically said, Hey, Leaf fans, we're going to cut you the biggest break of all. First puck to drop on the season? You, Leafs, Senators, next Wednesday. Now, in the midst of counting down toward playing games, Leaf fans have been wondering, will a captain be named? And will that captain be named Austin Matthews? Well, even if that was going to happen, it may have been placed on the back burner based on a story that came out yesterday regarding disorderly conduct charges filed against Austin Matthews of the Toronto Maple Leafs, stemming from an incident in May, stemming from an incident in Arizona. And joining us right now is Katie Strang, who is a senior writer with The Athletic. Katie has a story about this at The Athletic right now that you can see and read, and I encourage you to do that. And it has some very interesting details in it. Katie, thanks so much for being a part of London Live. Thanks for having me. Let's go to your involvement with this story and where your details come from, because you have far more substance than anything that's come out until now. Sure, I'd be happy to kind of take you through the process. Um, So I heard, obviously, about this on Tuesday night, which sounds like is about the exact same time that the Toronto Maple Leafs heard about this. Um, And there were some sort of just, like, spontaneous reports popping up on Twitter about um, a disorderly conduct or a disruptive fighting charge. Um, And so I started sort of searching around the court systems and the police department to see what I could find, thinking it was probably a bar fight or something of that nature. Um, so I, you know, made records requests with the local departments and was able to obtain a police report, as many others did um, the first night, and then, um, but I also requested a body cam video, which um, some departments now require their officers to use in any sort of work capacity. So basically what this video um, that was released yesterday showed was the officer... Um, interviewing the security guard who made the complaint um, against Austin Matthews in terms of this off-season incident uh, that happened in May. And, and, and it really was a pretty comprehensive, thorough interview of her detailing what happened that night and why she chose to report it. Um, so that's kind of how I got the information. I'm happy to go into further detail if you want me to do that. Okay, well, you've kind of spelled out what has happened. So we had Austin Matthews addressing this yesterday before the game, after the game that the Leafs played. He scored a goal in the game. And in terms of, of what additional info, other than a charge had been filed and there was a video and a security guard had been involved, what have you managed to uncover? Sure. So what happened essentially, according to the security guard, is she was sitting in her car locked um, around 2 a.m. while she was working a security shift around the condo building where Matthews resides. And um, around 2.20 a.m., a group of young men, including Matthews, um, tried entering her locked car. Um, She observed them, what she assumed to be extremely intoxicated, um, they were, she was very rattled, I think, by the fact that they did try to get into her car. She didn't know what was going on. Um, she explained why this was disturbing and upsetting to her that, you know, you should not approach a, a female or anyone for that matter in their car and try to get into their car. Um, 
you know, for obviously no apparent reason. And while she was kind of explaining this dynamic and why this is upsetting and inappropriate to do, Matthews apparently walked away from her and into the condo building and dropped his pants and grabbed his buttocks um, in her, I guess, and made some sort of, you know, gesture in her direction in, in that regard. Um, so that, that was obviously upsetting to her. She, you know, mentioned it to the condo manager. Um, and it, it, to me, the takeaway was that she, she made it pretty clear she didn't really care about him dropping his pants. But the more upsetting thing to her was she was frightened and rattled by the fact that these young guys were trying to get into her car and, and that was, you know, intimidating to her and left her feeling very disturbed. Um, the other interesting takeaway is she said that she would not have pursued charges had it not been for the fact that, according to her, when the condo manager did consult uh, Matthew's father, um, the father apparently um, denied it, that anything had happened and refuted you know, her side of events. And so she felt like, you know, her, I guess the veracity of her story was being called into question. She was, you know, being called a liar, essentially. And so that made her, you know, upset. She felt like there was probably some entitlement in play. And so that is what prompted her to press charges. We're talking with Katie Strang, senior writer with The Athletic, and we're talking about a few other details that have come out in the Austin Matthews story regarding disorderly conduct charges being filed against Matthews in Arizona. So that's that's interesting that that she would not have filed charges, and then do we know then whether that prompted her to then go to police, or how, how did that unfold? Yes, she, I mean, she first went to the manager of the condo building. Um, she also mentions that she was approached by a member of the condo's board, and the person told her, if you decide to press charges, we will support you because this person has been an issue for us in the past. So that's something interesting um, to kind of file away. But so then, um, yeah, she said she basically didn't decide to come forward and press charges until she had heard that the manager contacted the father and the father way he, I guess, reacted to the news, um, angered her and, and made her upset and was, you know, she found that offensive. Um, and then she said that the condo manager did then send the security footage to Austin's um, father and that that seemed to verify what she had um, reported about the incident itself. So there's a security video, and you mentioned a body cam video as well. So there's there's two separate videos of, of this particular well, so incident? The, so, no. So the body cam video is actually not of the incident itself. There is security, apparently surveillance video from the condo building that it sounds like so verifies her account to some degree. Um, the body cam video is actually of the police officer conducting the interview with the security guard as she comes in to detail what had happened that night. Gotcha. So it's about like a 30-minute video that just basically goes through her detailing everything that happened from her point of view. Well, it is a very interesting story, an off-ice story. You know, the, the Leafs just seem to have this sometimes where off-ice stuff goes on and uh, everybody will use the word distraction for a while, I guess, in scrums, won't they? I'm sure they will. <laughs> Katie, thank you so much for detailing what it is that you've uncovered on this story. We really appreciate the time. Enjoy the hockey part of watching hockey and, and covering hockey. That'll come soon. I love it.
<laughs> I will very much do so. Thank you. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Katie Strang of The Athletic. So little added things to the Austin Matthews story. And again, everything still has to be proven in court. Everything is still alleged. All of that is still playing out. But the idea that you have the security guard in question in Arizona claiming that she would not have filed charges, but then she tells the dad and or the the manager sent the dad of Austin Matthews security footage uh it allegedly features Matthews pulling down his pants in it and then oh, there there's a denial of it and then all of a sudden this comes around and then that the people in question in this video whoever they might be um that they had been an issue before so yeah this this is one of those things and it it will likely change what the Leafs may have had planned for their team captain. And if this does turn out to be true, and some of the stuff that Austin Matthews said yesterday and the way he said it just made him look all all kind of disappointed that this had happened. Now, is he disappointed that, that he's kind of been wrapped up in something or, or is this true? We still wait for that to play out. But at the same time, you know, these, these are not captain-like actions. That's not that's not somebody who's ready to be in a position like that if all of this winds up being true. That's that's not how you act. It just isn't. It's not what you do. We are hurtling toward another hey, look what's legal in Canada. Last year at about this time, we were hurtling toward hey. Marijuana, cannabis, legal in Canada, October 17th. Well, this time around, it's going to be edibles. Edibles that contain cannabis, CBD, you name it. They are going to be legal. They're going to be sold. And I sounded too many alarm bells last time. I know I did. I usually do. I overthink stuff. And I figured, yeah, it would have more of an impact. The legalization of marijuana would have more of an impact than I believe it actually has. You know, I walked over, bought some milk last night because we were low on milk. So I walked over to a local drugstore to do it. And two guys were smoking a joint outside this convenience store not too far away. Yeah, we see that. Okay. It's, it's not very earth shattering. With edibles, the kids concern me. But we're not going to talk about kids right now. We're going to talk about something that I didn't even think would be a thing. We're going to talk about pets. Edibles are not even legal yet, but in Canada and in the United States, there is an issue with animals and edibles. And Dr. Ian Sandler can help us understand what that is. Dr. Sandler is the CEO of Great Wolf Animal Health. Dr. Sandler, how's today going for you? It's great. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks so much for being here because you have been finding some things, what would you say, over the last year? Or is this something that's come up more recently well, certainly we're seeing a similar kind of uh, statistics that, that, that they're seeing in the U.S. So I would say over the last two to three years, we've been uh, looking, certainly anecdotally, just amongst veterinarians in Canada, seeing uh, more and more inappropriate ingestions of cannabis-based products, primarily in dogs, but other animals as well. And uh, that, that's a trend that they're seeing in the U.S. as well now. Um, we're the second uh, country to, to have nationalized, if you will, legalization for cannabis amongst humans, let's put it that way. Uh, and certainly in the U.S., uh, from a state-by-state basis, um, they have uh, been in the space, shall we say, earlier than, than uh, Canada has. And so 
Uh, certainly, uh, they have seen uh, an increase as well. What's interesting is we actually have now data being tracked from a, uh, a call center, a poison control center in the U.S., which we didn't before. So now, uh, again, these are voluntary cases, so there's no mandatory reporting system, but it does at least start to show um, some of the numerics around uh, these inappropriate ingestion cases. So when you have a pet that comes in, let's call it a, a dog, would that be the most common animal that might come in with an ingestion case? Correct. And when the dog comes in, how do you know that that's the issue? Well, many of the uh, the signs that we're seeing are, are primarily on higher THC products. So in some cases, owners may uh, have been using these products to try and uh, you know, treat or, or um, you know, look to um, use some of the cannabis-based products that, that they may have either on the recreational or on the medical side for an ailment very similar to things that they're treating uh, for themselves. So for things like arthritis or anxiety. So in some cases, they may have used oils that are inappropriate or at a very high dose. So in some cases, they actually know that the pet got into it. In other cases, they, they, they don't. So um, again, it, it depends on the situation, but ultimately these, these dogs tend to look very wobbly. They tend to look, um, you know, high for want of a better term. So um, they may be very sensitive to sound. They may be sensitive to light. They may be having difficulties uh, with their balance. About 50% uh, of the dogs that are presented in more of the moderate cases may have a uh, urinary incontinence. So they may be uh, dribbling urine as they walk. Um, and those are some of the signs that uh, the owners will, will start to see. So it's not uncommon for, for pet owners to come in and say, you know what, I think my dog got into something. I think what's a little bit scary is that when people are consuming cannabis, especially the joints that are fairly high in THC, they may flick those, those cannabis uh, cigarettes, if you will, or joints on the ground. And, and what they're not realizing is that this is not just a cigarette, but there's actually uh, an active ingredient in there um, it can be quite, um, you know, sensitive in terms of when, when, when pets ingest them. So we need to be really careful what we're doing with those uh, half or, or even, you know, very small uh, cannabis uh, joints that are, that are flipped on the ground. Wow. Okay. Now, one of the other things that you mentioned, did you allude to the fact that some people might be thinking, okay, well, I have arthritis and I've been prescribed cannabis. My pet has arthritis. Maybe they could have some too. Does that happen? It does. And so, you know, what we certainly know is that um, all mammals have an endocannabinoid system. And so for the same reason that, that humans are, are looking uh, for cannabis-based products as either an adjuvant or secondary a therapy to help, you know, traditional pharmaceuticals that, that they're using that may not be working as well or in replacement of altogether. So things like arthritis, pain, anxiety, neurological conditions, these are the same kinds um, of ailments that, that the pets experience too. And so um, the, the problem right now with the cannabis legislation and the laws in Canada is that veterinarians were really never included in any of the discussion. And so where the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association has really stepped up is they've said to Health Canada, look, um, veterinarians need to get added to the medical cannabis uh, route, if you will. Veterinarians are the only group that should be authorizing uh, a legal pathway for cannabis through the medical route through licensed producers. And so similar to medical doctors, if we have a patient that, that potentially uh, could benefit from these products, we need to find a legal pathway to be able to authorize the use of cannabis. So they've been very adamant about that. The other thing that they've worked very, very hard is to also speak to the government on issues of pet labeling. So 
Uh, part of the problem is that all CHC products have uh, warning labels for children, but, but pets and animals are not included on those labels. And so there needs to be a big education push amongst the government, realizing that, um, you know, as legalization uh, has moved forward, if you will, there's a lot of, uh, if you will, collateral damage that's occurring uh, that, that may have been inadvertent, but nonetheless, um, you know, two out of three Canadians own a pet, and of those, half of them have more than one in the house. So this is a big deal for um, Canadian pet parents, and certainly veterinarians are there to uh, really be the advocate of, of pet parents and, and the animals that we, that we uh, really treat on a daily basis. We're talking with Dr. Ian Sandler, CEO of Grey Wolf Animal Health, about numbers of pets that are being brought in showing signs of having consumed a cannabis product. We're also looking at, as Dr. Sandler said, the labeling aspect of this, the collateral damage in this. Dr. Sandler, in terms of what cannabis will do to a pet. I mean, if people ingest it, yes, they get a, a high, and that high eventually kind of drifts away for the most part. How about with an animal? What's happening there? Well, it's actually very similar. So um, we know that, um, you know, from a mammalian perspective, that we have these various uh, receptors within our bodies, primarily um, CB1 and CB2 receptors. Uh, and these endocannabinoid uh, systems that, that all mammals uh, contain, in some cases, certain species may be more sensitive to THC, for example. So um, certainly there's lots of research being done by companies like Grey Wolf Animal Health looking at specific dosing, looking at specific indications and, and, and various um, species as well as to where these products would, would really suit. So I think the issue is there is a, a therapeutic place for these particular products, the issue is, um, you know, how much, if you will. And so one of the big things that's really concerning veterinarians, especially with the edible market leaning in Canada, is that many people that are ingesting high THC products, be it medical or, or just on the recreational side, are placing those oils in things like uh, chocolate brownies that may con- uh, have products that are, that are toxic to, to pets in and by on themselves. And so it's not the fact that um, the THC is toxic to the point that it's going to kill your pet. The issue is if that THC is in a carrier like chocolate, that is, that is very, very significant. So what we're seeing is some of these moderate cases, again, over the span of between 4 and 12 hours, many of the signs will dissipate. But the problem is um, if these high THC products are in baked goods uh, that have very high levels of especially dark chocolate with things like raisins and maybe macadamia nuts, that's the real serious issue um, again. And so when people may make these brownies and put them on the table, they may say, you know what, my toddler's not going to get up there, but they may not think about their golden retriever, the bigger dog that or cat even that may be table surfing or jumping on these counters and ingesting these products. Wow. Well, and I guess that that's what we're going to have to be talking about with kids as well. You know, don't leave these products out. It blows my mind that they allow gummy bears to contain THC when you might have had gummy bears with your kids a while ago and a dog is apt to eat a gummy bear. But you mentioned the education. That's that's what it comes down to. Thank you for your part in this education. Anything else that you're noticing that you think we need to be aware about or aware of before October the 17th or well, I think the other thing that's, that's happening now that people may not be aware of is that 
cats and dogs are very sensitive to secondhand smoke. And so if you are consuming a cannabis in, in, a, in a smokable format now and you're in an apartment or a closed area, please make sure the area is very, very well ventilated because uh, cats and dogs can be sensitive to secondhand smoke. And so, again, they can uh, still inhale the secondhand smoke and, and receive THC through that. So, so please be careful in that situation as well. Great point. Dr. Sandler, thank you so much for your time today. It's nice to be with you. Dr. Ian Sandler, CEO of Great Wolf Animal Health. Animals and edibles. And I don't want to hear any stories about two-year-olds and edibles either. I, I fear for that kind of stuff. Every Thursday, Global News and globalnews.ca is going to have a different election issue, and we're going to focus in on that. And today, that election issue is one that you would say, wait a minute, where does this fall in? Climate change? Well, check the polls. People are very concerned about that. And it becomes something that climbs up and up in terms of what are you most concerned about as we head toward the next federal election? Joelle Moses is certainly concerned about climate change. And we have her with us right now. She's a 22-year-old co-director of a company called For Life. And she joins us on the phone. Joelle, welcome to London Live. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Climate change as a topic has been around for a long, long time. Today, as we mentioned, Global News has all kinds of different things that you can read at globalnews.ca. But you are somebody who's become quite immersed in the topic and quite concerned about the topic. And at 22 years old, you represent another person who has not been on this earth as long as a lot of us. And yet this is something you see as being really, really important. What is it that got you involved in what you're doing? Um, for me, I started learning about climate change, I guess, in university a couple years ago. I've been studying international development and I just started to realize how climate change is so inextricably connected to basically every social issue people care about, from inequality to um, gender equality to indigenous rights. It's all very deeply connected. Um, and I just started to realize that, you know, nothing else is really going to matter on this planet if our Earth becomes uninhabitable. So I really do see it as the number one issue of our time, which is why I dedicate my entire life to it from here going forward. When you talk about seeing that everything is intertwined, how would you kind of mm -hmm. paint that picture? How are we seeing whatever it is that we have going on in a, a social issue or a socioeconomic issue? How is that tied to climate change in your mind? Yeah, sure. I mean, on a, on a grand scale, if you're looking at, like, the whole world, um, that's sort of the biggest paradox around global warming, they say, um, is that, you know, um, those who contribute to it the least are the people who are affected by it the most. So we know that over 80% of historical carbon emissions come from the 20 richest countries in the world, while most of the effects of climate change right now are being felt in the global south and by some of the poorest people on Earth who have contributed virtually nothing to this problem. So that's what makes climate change such a huge social justice issue, because um, we know it disproportionately affects um, the global self, it disproportionately affects women, disproportionately affects indigenous communities and poor communities. We're talking so, with you. Oh, sorry, go ahead. 
Oh, no, go ahead. Okay, we're talking with Joelle Moses, climate activist and the co-director of For Life, and you'll see on globalnews.ca all kinds of information because we're dealing with this as we will deal with an issue each and every Thursday for the election. Now, Joelle, this becomes a big election issue, and if you look at some of the polling that's been done, climate change has certainly even climbed up what people expect in terms of election issues, in terms of importance. So when you look at this as an election issue, what are you seeing right now? Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing um, in Canada and around the world that climate change is becoming unignorable, and regardless of people's politics, people are waking up and understanding this reality that it is a matter of survival and it is an emergency. So the way that I'm sort of viewing this election is trying to really urge people to put partisan politics aside and just think really critically about the situation that we are in. Um, Because as I'm sure you know, um, the world's leading scientists from the IPCC have told us that we have 11 years left um, to seriously cut carbon emissions and um, reverse these trends or else out of our hands forever. So we know that especially in a country with as much capacity as Canada and who's also um, uh, has such a big contribution to climate change as Canada does, we cannot afford another four years of political inaction on climate change here, um, which I think a lot of voters are, are starting to wake up and realize. If you look and and kind of deal with the people who are your age, the people who you run into do you hear them saying, hey, the way to change this is to vote, I'm going to vote? Or do you find that maybe they're they're not as ready to jump up and say, yeah, the way to change this is me voting? Right, yeah. So I, I think um, I am focused on working with young people because I think young people really do have a very genuine desire to, um, to fix the world and to see a more... Uh, just and equitable and sustainable future. But I think the problem is that a lot of people are so frustrated with the government inaction on climate change and just so frustrated with this system that they are not voting. Um, And that is why our basically our whole campaign that we're running through for life online on Instagram. um, It's S-O-R life underscore online is aimed at mobilizing young voters um, because as we're seeing Um, around the world, especially with the climate strikes happening, is that young people are willing to show up and protest this government inaction on climate change. But the problem is that a lot of us who are showing up to protest simply are not voting. Um, So what we're trying to do is help young people understand that um, this upcoming election is one of the most strategic opportunities we will have to really push for the large-scale change in government that we know that we need in order to stop climate change. We're talking with Joelle Moses, climate activist, co-director of For Life. Is there a website we can send people to as well? There is a website. It's For Life Online. Um, um, Forlife.online is our website. And on Instagram, um, you can find us at forlife underscore online, which is where um, the majority of our campaign is being facilitated through. Joelle, as of last Saturday, you started to do something to really try to draw even more attention to this issue. What have you been doing? Exactly one month before the election, I decided to um, basically start wearing a green outfit around town every single day until the election. So for exactly one month, 
Um, and I'm doing this to really just try to bring attention to our campaign, um, to get conversation started and to show people in the community that young people are voting green and um, really just trying to embody what we're working towards. Okay, just as an aside, do you have enough green clothes to keep this going for a while? I'm, I'm looking in, in my mind in my closet and I could maybe do a day. How are you doing this? Um, well, yeah, I actually did start with one outfit. I had a tie-dyed green outfit that I homemade this summer that I've been wearing and it's it actually started as a joke. My friend um, joked to me saying, oh, Joe, are you going to wear this every day until the election? And then uh, this Saturday, I sort of had an idea. I was like, hmm, maybe I will. Um, so originally, I was going to wear that same outfit every day, but I realized that it is getting a little bit colder. So I think shorts and a tank top every day for the next month is a little bit impractical. So I am hoping to borrow some green clothing from um, my friends and anyone who's willing to share because, you know, I would hate to, you know, use any of the Earth's precious resources to buy any more clothing for this. So, yeah, I will be borrowing from my clothes, from my friends. That's hey, the plan. That's all right, though. You're, you've been able to keep it going so far for a few days. So once you get a few days, you're, you're fine. You've, you've got to, you can rotate. So Exactly. Reduce, reuse, recycle. <laughs> Joelle, when you look, would you call them fears that you have if nothing is done, if if we really don't get on board? Because there are people who have already thought, you know, we're, it's too late anyway. Like, we're, we're never going to get enough mobilized to reduce enough over the next 11 years, or even if you look at a target of 2050 as a drop-dead date, we're never going to get there. Would you call it a fear of yours? Uh, I definitely think it, it is a very legitimate fear that I think a lot of people... Um, sort of relate to. Um, but I've also actually studied psychology, so I've thought a lot about sort of the psychological side of climate change and why it's so hard to think about and to act on. And I think a big problem that sort of stops a lot of people from acting on climate change is the fact that most of the messaging around climate change is about fear. It's about triggering anxiety, like, oh, the end of the world is coming. Oh, we're all doomed. There's nothing we can do. And I think that is actually really off-putting for people because it makes them feel so stressed out that they're even paralyzed to act. So I think something really missing from the dialogue often is that, you know, we're not just trying to avoid collapse and disaster, but we are trying to create a, a better world. We're trying to fix the problemat problematic aspects of the system that are killing our world and creating the biggest inequalities and, you know, also resulting in the highest levels of depression and anxiety. So we know there are clearly things wrong with our system that we can change for the better. So I really do like to try to focus on the positive in that way and realize that, yes, no matter what, we know that climate change is going to get worse because of what we're doing today. But um, every day that we take action and the more we do, the best case scenario just gets better and better. So yeah. I try to think about it that way. You have such a great outlook in that way, and I think people are hearing that kind of an attitude, maybe even for the first time, that it's not about, if you don't do this, you know, that that's the old style even of parenting. If you don't do this, then I'm going to send you to your room, or, you know, right. it's, it's terrible, oh, we're going we're gonna to create a bad outcome for you. It doesn't have to be like that. Do you feel that the message can 
can hit hard enough if it's not like that? Because, you know, humans aren't that complex. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. we need to, to get the old, you know, the, the slam in the chest in order to kind of come to our senses. Can we, can mm-hmm. we see a movement grow that does impact the people who are making a lot of money and producing a lot of carbon and doing a lot of things like that in order to turn this around? Do, do you have optimism like that? Well, yeah, I do think that, you know, we have to be realistic while we are being optimistic. Um, So I do think that we have to really internalize this harsh reality of sort of where the current projections stand and really understand that today's level of inaction, we can't continue with this if we want to survive. It is a matter of survival and it's a matter of, you know, creating a, a world that we actually want to live in, not just surviving. Um, but I heard something that uh, somebody said at the climate change conference that I was at in Scotland a couple of months ago that um, really, really um, sunk in with me. And they were saying that, you know, it's those people who still are, are living in denial that need to have a moment of panic. Um, and it's not necessarily meaning that they, they deny that climate change is real, but people who are living in ways that are not conducive to solving climate change are, in a sense, living in denial and those people need to have a moment of panic. But once we really do internalize um, the situation that we're in um, and start taking actions towards fixing it, I think that um, we can know that we're doing our best and sort of let go of the anxiety that comes with the unknown. When you are doing as much as you can every single day, that is all you can do. Um, and and it feels pretty good to take action. Seriously, it feels a lot better than the anxiety that comes with sitting around and, you know, just hoping. Joelle, as a final question, we're talking with Joelle Moses, a climate activist and the co-director of For Life. As a final question, how often do you run into people who still say, no, nah, climate change is not a real thing. Stop doing what you're doing. To be honest, I don't think I have ever met Maybe, maybe one or two out of like hundreds and thousands of people I've talked to about climate change that denies um, that it is a real thing. The scientific consensus, consensus around climate change is so strong, and we've known this stuff for decades. Um, I do think um, most people believe in climate change and want to do something to help, but I think the biggest problem is that people don't know exactly what they can actually do to help or what can make the biggest effect. Um, and what I'm really, the message I'm really trying to um, send home in this next month is that who we elect into office in Canada for the next four years can make a greater difference than almost anything we can do as individuals, such as, you know, eating less meat or using a reusable car. Um, you know, if we look at the states, for an example, um, we can see that who we have in power in such a powerful country um, can change the way the entire country is run and has affected around the world for better or for worse. So seriously, I urge anyone who has ever felt a desire to help to really just get out and vote and realize how important that is. And um, please consider climate as a top priority when voting. Joelle, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for helping us to understand your perspective on this. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mike. I really appreciate it. And if, um, anyone wants to learn more about the election and the different parties and their climate plans, definitely check out our Instagram. Um, it's at forlife underscore online. Joelle Moses. Joelle, thank you. Joelle is co-director of For Life. She is a climate activist, so that's, that's how she spells this out. It is an election issue, and that, in her mind, is the way to target this, the way to target climate change.
to get involved. And as she says, a lot of young people who right now are saying, ah, it doesn't matter if I vote. It does. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 